Hi, everyone, and welcome to Behind the Numbers. My name is Dave Bookbinder. I'm a managing director at B. Riley Financial and author of the new ROI, Return on Individuals. And this is the show that digs deeper to understand what really matters most in business. And if you've been watching or listening for a while, you know that what I think matters most in business are the human capital assets, the people of an organization. And today I'm pleased to welcome my dear friend, Laura Queen, who is the author of People Economics, Defining and Measuring the True Value of Human Capital. She's also the CEO of 29 Bison. Laura, welcome to Behind the Numbers. Thanks, Dave. Great to be here. Why don't you tell the audience who you are? Ah, uh, so... I, my professional career is as a CEO and founder of 29 Bison. Um, I prefer to refer to myself as a people appreciator. Uh, that's what we do in business. It's why we wrote the book and why Dave and I know each other, because, of course, we think that people are the most important asset in, in an organization, and they contribute really instrumental value. And we can prove it. We can prove it. Yes. So let's start with the book, right? What inspired you to write this? And give us a, just a brief overview of what we can find inside here before we dive into the chapters. Sure. Uh, really, the inspiration for this book was an exercise in sense-making. Uh, one of my business partners and I were on the road to create software that would help organizations look at the intersection between financial value and um, creating some operational intelligence around that connected to some of the human capital measures that you and I will talk about today. But in doing that, there was a lot of research. You know, we needed to go down the whole path of understanding what lived in the world of human capital economics or human capital accounting, what that looked like, who was doing research, all of those kinds of things. And as I personally went through some of that research, it became very apparent to me that, A, there's an alphabet soup that lives out there around all of these concepts and constructs and that there were a lot of people, lots of organizations that had vested interest in, in various aspects of this, including, and we'll talk about this, ESG reporting, sustainability reporting, what's happening in that world. Sure. And making sense of that was a really integral aspect of putting together our software, our SaaS-based platform. And at one point, it just occurred to me that if I needed to make sense of it, then there must be lots of other people out there that also needed to make sense of it. And because I had compiled the research, this was an opportunity to put it out there. Nice. Well, let's dive into it. And I think the best place to start is a chapter that you call Requisite for a Renaissance. And I think that summarizes in, in a grand way what this message really is about. Talk to us about the Renaissance. Sure. Um, one way to situate the Renaissance is to consider the shift in the economic landscape, particularly in the United States, but this is true really across the globe. When you look at what made up the S&P 500 market value in 1975, about 90% of it were the things that we consider assets on an organization's balance sheet today. When we look at those same indicators in 2020, the inverse is actually what's happening in organizations now. About 90% of value is created in organizations, specifically in the S&P 500, um, all around intangible assets. Right. And a really com significant component part of those intangible assets is people. And I would argue that it's the people that also create the other intangible assets. So For sure. So that, that is, you know... It's why the renaissance needs to take place. We need to think differently. We need to account differently. Uh, we need to invest differently in our organizations in order to ensure that we continue the, that toward that evolution that really is about a knowledge-based economy. 
Yeah, so for sure. I mean, the, the evolution to the proliferation of intangible assets, for sure. And you mentioned that people are the ones that create the other assets. But as you know, people don't appear in a balance sheet. Right. So, And we'll get into the accounting piece. But one of the things that you hear all the time in business is you can't manage what you can't measure. And this topic that we're talking about here has historically been somewhat squishy for a lot of people mm -hmm. for a lot of reasons because they can't really get their mitts around how to measure it. Talk about the challenges of measuring it. Well, there are a number of challenges, um, one of which, and you, you see this in conversations and in writing around the topics of human capital measurement right now, has to do with a set of standards around human capital measures. Um, it is, there are, there are a plethora of ways that you can go about measuring anything in business, human capital specifically. Uh, because there isn't a set of standards a universal set of standards. There are many sets of standards out there, but there isn't a universally accepted mm -hmm. set of standards around human capital measures at this point. Um, it, it, that can be a confusing landscape. It's confusing for evaluators of the information. It's confusing for the creators of that information, first of all. I think we also live very much in a world where quantitative measure is the thing that we deem to be most important. And when you start talking about intangibles, you're talking about a combination of qualitative and quantitative measure. And that's, it's harder to manage through the conversation around how do I compare qualitative measures one against another, two organizations, two periods in time, two sets of clients or customers, for example. How do, how do we get through that? Um, that's not to say that those things are immeasurable. We just have a long way to go to get to the place where we feel that there's a set of universally accepted standards and, they, and where they should be applied. You and I will talk a little bit about materiality and why that's important in the conversation around measurement. Um, but that's, that's part of what's happening. And you see that in the book. It, it was obvious in the research um, that that's one of the things we're all I won't say struggling with, but it's a challenge and an opportunity. Yeah, and look, part of the challenge with intangible assets is you can't book them as an organization unless they're acquired. And with regard to intangibles that get booked, human capital doesn't appear on a financial statement. It gets subsumed into goodwill. And one of the challenges that I've seen is that until people wind up on a financial statement, it's, it's hard to get folks to, to really care. I mean, I think we all intuitively know that, yes, people do create value. And I think every CEO on the planet has said that our people are our most, most valuable asset. Hopefully, most of them believe that. But do you think this accounting model is preventing greater traction in this space? Yes and no. I think that the accounting model has the opportunity to inform, I think, a, a different vantage point or a different point of view around what, how we account for all intangibles in an organization, most specifically the human capital piece. I think if we go back one step, it's not just the accounting model, it's the definitions. You know, there are, we have different gap definitions than IFRS definitions, for example, around what are intangibles and what are assets in an organization. And until we f go back to some of those original definitions, such as an asset, a human capital can't be an asset because it is something that can't be owned by an organization. Until you go back to some of those definitions and redefine some of those things, it makes the accounting component much more difficult. Yep. Laura, for folks who are watching and listening and want to learn more about you and where they can get the book, mm -hmm. how do they connect with you and where do they get it? Sure. So you can find me directly at People Econ 
on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, professionally, you can find my LinkedIn profile. It's Laura Keller's Queen. Um, and you can uh, reach out to me via my business email, which is laura.queen at 29bison.com. The book is available at just about every bookseller. Um, I will say my preference is bookshop.org because it supports um, small businesses, but it's also available on Amazon and it launches officially on the 13th. Get your hands on this. This is a good read. Laura, we have about just a few minutes to go in this mm -hmm. first segment, but I want to wrap up on a note around organizational culture, right? Mm -hmm. Because Good cultures that value and appreciate the human capital, the people, tend to foster the not only the underpinning philosophies, but reap the benefits of the discretionary effort and all the good things that come from doing right by people, by doing good. Can we measure this organizational culture? Yes, you can measure organizational culture on in a number of different ways. There are really great standards and tools out there. There are lots of organizations that are doing work on this and are measuring culture and engagement and the translation of culture and engagement to financial outcomes in businesses. Um, there's some really interesting work being done by uh, Irrational Capital, Dan Ariely's organization, in conjunction with Energage. I reference it in the book. Um, the Great Places to Work Institute has done um, some of this work year over year. Gallup is another organization that takes a look at the impact and implications for positive and not so positive organization cultures. Um, a really good I think, indicator of this. There's less information specific to private companies, more information available in, a, in the academic literature around publicly traded organizations. Um, but looking at publicly traded organizations, uh, Alex Edmonds has done this work for a couple of decades now. And he went back at one point and took a look at the outcomes of S&P 500 organizations against the outcomes of great places to work organizations as identified on Fortune's 100 best places to work list yep. year over year for a period of time. And what he was able to demonstrate through his research looking retrospectively at these organizations is that businesses that showed up on the great places to work index period over period for the period of time that he was studying, saw 23 to 3.8% higher returns on their stock over that period of time. That compounds, and it's a huge economic indicator of the yeah. value of higher quality work environments. Yeah, so the human capital directly impacts the value of a business, would you say? 100%, yes. Yeah. That's a good spot to take a quick commercial break. Laura, sit tight. We're going to pay a few bills. We'll be right back on Behind the Numbers after this quick break. So, I'm kind of new here, but I've noticed a trend. My human does this funny thing where she goes around and gets all my toys, and then she hides them in that basket by the door. You know, but it's always the same basket. 
and it's always in the, in the same place. And then she acts so surprised when I find them, but you know, she's putting them in the same basket again. It's like, hello, that's where you put it last time. You were the worst at hide and go seek. New Jersey, 130 miles of beautiful beaches, solid rock, and everything in between. Now that's New Jersey. Plan your New Jersey trip at visitnj.org. Waves of fun. Nights of excitement. And a trail of memories. Now that's New Jersey. And welcome back to Behind the Numbers. I'm Dave Bookbinder, and today we're talking people economics with Laura Queen. Laura, at the end of the first segment, we started to allude to the, the public company disclosures, and we didn't really touch on that, but uh, for folks who are watching and listening, the SEC recently required public companies to make certain disclosures around human capital, and that's one avenue for opportunity, but maybe you can touch on that, but also maybe even more importantly, the privately held companies that have no such requirements at this point in time. Why does it matter for them and the institutional investors who may be looking to either buy into or purchase in their entirety those privately held businesses? Sure. Great question. So one of the reasons that the SEC has gone down the path of the Reg SK modernization around human capital disclosure is because there was pressure being placed on them by institutional investors for greater levels of disclosure and transparency in the organizations they're investing in, partly for their own purposes and partly for the purposes of the individuals whose dollars are being invested through these institutional investors in organizations like Calsters and CalPERS and others. Those same institutional investors invest via a variety of avenues in the private markets as well. One way that that happens, for example, is they contribute dollars to private equity through private equity fundraising. So it stands to reason that those same investors, if they're looking for a level of transparency and disclosure in publicly traded companies because they know that it's important to their investment outcomes, would have a very similar viewpoint about requiring in information that flows through the private portion of their investment similarly because the outcomes in those organizations, and I would argue potentially even more in some of those smaller organizations, are indicators of 
long-term, potentially long-term investable outcomes for the business related to people and other intangibles, intellectual property creation, creativity, high quality work environments, those kinds of things. Yeah, for sure. So on the institutional investor front, I, I've had a number of folks in the private equity space on this program. And private equity, I guess, historically has gotten a bad rap uh, for you know, just churning and burning and flipping organizations. But I, I will tell you that there is a consciousness that's happening in that mm -hmm. space that I'm seeing mm -hmm. in terms of their focus on the human element here and how it is a real value creator and value driver. What are you seeing? We're seeing a massive uptick in that space. Um, fourth quarter of this year will be the strongest quarter we've ever had. And it is largely because private equity is coming to us and saying, we specifically see the value in these organizations that is being created by people, culture, leadership, et cetera. And to some degree, we are also being asked, mainly at this point voluntarily, to provide information back to our LPs with respect to human capital and other aspects of the work environment. In fact, um, a, a relatively new PE firm to us came to us. Um, their funding is primarily hap happening through debt facility. And the merchant banks have come to them and said, we want indications of the overall culture of an organization before we're willing to invest. How can you help us get to that place? And it's the first time that we've seen that specific conversation. We had heard that they were happening anecdotally, but we hadn't heard of, you know, had direct contact with someone whose sort of back channel was saying, in order for us to feel comfortable with the investment through you as the you know, the end investor mm -hmm. in this organization, we want some assurances that you're investing in good organizations and good leaders and places that care. Yeah, that's some enlightened yeah. thinking. And look, mm -hmm. there's real economics under play here, of right? Course. Because there's a churn, there's a real value of replacing your staff, your people, that, that mind share that walks out the door. That's certainly expensive and everything else we've talked about regarding culture. Right. One of the things you mentioned uh, in passing here briefly was leadership, the role of leadership in, in making this environment work. Um, talk about that. I know you have a chapter in your book that's called The Impact of Leaders. Yeah, so I think, first of all, leadership in its truest essence really lives across the organization in any portion of the hierarchy because leadership truly is just about influence. And here what we're talking about, and part of the reason for putting all of this down in a book is to inform the influence that creates the leadership in organizations, which is to say, in the, in the world of the finance department of businesses, thinking differently about what and how information lives on the balance sheet. At this point, we're not asking to change the accounting formulary for your balance sheet, for example. But what we are saying is take that a step further and take a look at what doesn't appear but is influential, the idea of materiality, right? What is material to the way your organization operates that might not appear as an investable asset in your business, yet has a material outcome to your organization specifically? That takes a shift in mindset. And the way that mindset is going to shift is for leaders to wrap their heads around an integrated thinking perspective about the way the organization operates and how it create, how and who creates value for it. Um, how and why to share from a uh, transparency standpoint back into your organization and external to your organization, how value is created, 
and think um, very specifically about who it is you bring to the room to have some of those conversations. I mean, sadly, we happen to see a piece um, that IBM put out at the beginning of the year about leadership in organizations. And one of the things they talked about was how important culture and engagement was to these CEOs that were interviewed, yet dead last on the list of people in the organization they would go to for support in building value for the organization was the CHRO which is absolutely the counter opposite of where we've already talked about, where value is being created for those organizations. So there's, there's a mismatch, a misalignment in um, the thinking around criticality. Who are the leaders that are most important in the organization? What does that look like and who needs to be invited to the conversation around understanding what really is material and to one of your original points, how you account for, how you measure that specifically in your organization, because not all measures are germane to every organization. Yeah. And with that said, are, are there a few that you might be able to think of that you might be able to recommend for leaders who are trying to be forward thinking and want to start putting together this type of framework? What, what should they be focusing on? A really easy one to begin with is turnover. So take a look at the turnover that's happening in your organization and get really curious about it. So think specifically about not only at an aggregate level, what does your attraction, retention, and attrition rate look like, but also parse that out. Is it different in one geography? Is it different at one level of your organization? Is it different leader by leader? I mean, when we talk about the creation of you know, highly valuable cultures in an organization, that doesn't happen by edict, it happens by interaction, it happens by caring and relationship. And so you can see patterns in an organization around turnover or promotability or those kinds of things. Get curious and then dig into that. Say, not only is the number telling me this, but there's got to be a story behind this. There's some kind of narrative. I want to understand what the experience of my um, you know, most profitable portion of the organization or my most stable portion of the organization is versus a portion that is unstable. What's happening in those places? Yeah. When you think about turnover, right now we're living in a time that's been called the great resignation period. Mm. Does that skew the thinking right now? Or it, now more than ever, is it even more important to be drilling into turnover? I, the, I think the answer to that is yes and yes. I mean, I think that it does skew things to some degree, but it also points to the fact that it's more important than it ever has been. Um, but, you know, when we, what we're hearing so far is that there are lots of different reasons for why the great resignation is happening. Um, and my purpose is not to dig into all of those kinds of things. However, there is some really good evidence that speaks to part of the lever population is happening because they feel that the work environments they are part of are not supportive to them. So it could be pay equity issues. You know, uh, we're talking a good game, but we're not actually doing anything mm -hmm. about pay equity. Obviously, we're living in a world where um, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, all of those things are really important component parts to whether or not an individual feels aligned with an organization and whether they believe that they can contribute their best to that organization. Um, there are measures that can be employed to take a look at what does your pay equity what do you look like? What does your DEI look like? Um, is Again, like turnover, is it similar to or different in various aspects of your business? Some of that may be a function of the labor market that you exist in. Some of it may be 
hiring practices? Should we be relooking at our hiring practices? But the only way you would know that is to dig into some of the data for yourself. Yeah. Laura, tell the folks how they can get in contact with you and how they can get a copy of the book. Certainly. So the book is available by most major resellers. Uh, we support bookshop.org. You can also find it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Uh, you can get in touch with me at, at People Economics on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, you can also find me directly on LinkedIn or via email at laura.queen at 29bison.com. We're almost out of time here. It goes fast. Mm -hmm. But I want to just give you an opportunity to talk a little bit more about the book if we can. Uh, I'm honored to be a contributor to this work, but I want you to talk about some of the other folks who have contributed and what else the audience can find inside the book besides the great mindshare that you're offering. Talk about some of your other collaborators. Sure. Uh, there, were two, there are two other really significant component parts to this book. One is the stories of contributors like you who are sharing a very specific area of expertise. So we have um, Dave Griffith who's sharing expertise on organization governance. Um, he is a, a very well-respected um, Philadelphia governance expert, Philadelphia-based governance expert, and so he contributes his thought about that and his own evolution as a board member and leader of both for-profit, not-for-profit organizations. Um, I'm very proud to say that we get to raise the voice of one of my former interns uh, who is now doing incredible work with Pixera Global and has a very important perspective to share about DE&I, particularly as a black female executive. Um, she just has a, some really incredible thoughts and stories to share about her own experiences. Uh, we have a contributor, Karen Fenner, who is sharing information specifically about what it takes to bring different cultures. And here we're talking sociological and geographic cultures together as part of deal making and or the experience of, um, you know, not homogenizing, but creating um, really high functioning, um, highly collaborative organizations together with people that come from literally different cultures. Um, so you, you hear all of their voices being shared. Um, and then there is a series of stories. I wanted very much for people to find themselves in the practical application of this book. And so there are a number of stories that come directly from um, my and my team's experiences in a variety of organizations. And they're coupled with ways to measure impact and outcome to organizations by example. Yeah, it's an actionable book. It's got real life stories, real examples, and great insights from other thought leaders as well. Laura, the renaissance is happening. You're on the forefront of it, and thank you for writing this. The book, the, the world needs this book now. So thank you so much for joining us today on Behind the Numbers. It's been my pleasure to have you here. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. And thank you, wherever you're watching and listening, for tuning into Behind the Numbers. My name is Dave Bookbinder. And as always, I invite you to connect with me. You can find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you can stay in contact with us and know what we're up to. Until we see you again, take care, everybody.